Well, this morning we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 28, and considering the resurrections to come. The resurrections to come. You know, this is a time of year when it's exciting because we get to see things, at least in this area of Wisconsin, we get to see things begin to grow out of the ground once again. We are seeing, we're seeing now the daffodils starting to pop up, you know, through the little bit of, you know, withered brown grass and dirt and everything from the winter. And the, you're starting to see the grass kind of, you know, turn a little bit greener as we're getting a few warmer days here in this area. And where there was deadness, we're beginning to see life again, aren't we? And even some of the trees, we start to see some buds and things uh, form. And we, we, you know, we understand that that's because of the seasons we have here. Uh, I guess you could say even in the northern hemisphere. We, we see seasons that, that give us this life cycle of vegetation. And we see in the fall, right, we see the leaves change colors. And then, and then things begin to wither. The leaves fall away, the plants die out, and, and soon long it's just all yellow and gray and everything, and, and, and a lot of it's cut down for the year. And then winter comes, right? And it's darker, and it's colder, and everything gets buried in snow. And you can really hear my enthusiasm for winter come out, right? <laughs> but winter, right? It's, it is darker, colder. And as far as green things go, it's not the time for that. But then finally spring comes. And life begins to appear once again. And then we move on into summer where really when it comes to vegetation, at least in our region, they are in their glory, aren't they? The trees are fully blossomed and growing and things are growing and it's in their glory. And we kind of see in the seasons of the climate, we see sort of an analogy for human life, our life cycle, as it were. We are in our lives, and through our human lives, we age, and, and, and our autumn, is, it, comes, and, you know, it comes upon us, and then eventually we all know we're going to die and leave this world. But then, just like spring brings life to green things, we know for us, resurrection will come. And our physical bodies are going to live again in newness of life and then in glory with the Lord. And so it's those things that are on our mind this morning as we come to 1 Corinthians 15 and beginning with verse 20. Again, we're in a chapter that is just all about resurrection from the dead. All of that based on the person of Jesus Christ. Again, as we think back, this being Palm Sunday, we think back over 2,000 years ago. You know the story. It's in Matthew 21 if you want to read it. But Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey's foal, right? And all the people, a lot of the people were gathered and they had the palm branches and they were shouting out, Hosanna, which is basically a cry for, save us, Lord. And they, they were looking at him as the king. And about, what, a few days later, they had crucified that guy. <laughs> they put him on a cross in conjunction with the Romans. 
and into the tomb he went. But then what changed history, Jesus came out of the tomb, right? That's what this is all about this time of year. It's about that resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that means for our lives now and for our resurrection and for our future. That is what is coming out of 1 Corinthians 15. Let's read 20 through 28, which is our passage this morning. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. This, this morning, is a passage of victory because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And this is what Paul is reminding the Corinthians who were beginning to doubt the teaching of resurrection for us. And his point is, again, in this passage, if Jesus rose again, then we will rise again. And in fact, we'll see even in our passage, all will rise again to go somewhere. And we are going to, as we walk through this passage, we're going to see there's basically two kinds of resurrection. We'll also take a look at the fact that there are three uh, resurrections in the future. And finally, as Paul even looks beyond the resurrections, there's a future beyond the resurrections for all eternity. This passage takes you all the way in to eternity future. When it is God and Christ and the saints ruling through creation. It's just amazing. All possible because of what happened over 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. So as we look at this passage, let's first look at the three, first three verses, 20 through 22, and see the idea that there are two kinds of resurrection. As we go through this, we'll also be pulling up some slides, and we're going to create a little graphic this morning to help you visualize when the resurrections happen. Because there's something Paul has in mind when he says Christ is the firstfruits, and then those who are his at his coming. And he begins to lay out an order of resurrections. As a matter of fact, it's included on the back of your bulletin insert this morning. But we're going to kind of work through that as we go through this passage so you can visualize those things. Kind of have the picture in our mind that Paul is describing in these verses. The first thing we want to say from verse 20, it talks about Jesus as the firstfruits from the dead. Basically this, all resurrection is vested in Jesus Christ. 
as Paul's point, there would be no resurrection had he not risen. But because he has risen, now all will rise. That is what is being described in these first few verses here. Verse 20, as well as verse 23, a little bit later, calls Jesus Christ the firstfruits of the resurrection. Now, firstfruits had a lot more meaning probably back in the first century than it does to us, but we can still make sense of this. Firstfruits is a harvest term. And in Israel of old, one of their feast days was called the Feast of Firstfruits. And it was this time of year. And what it was meant to picture is they had begun to plant things in the spring. And you know, some things begin to grow earlier. Some crops grow early. Some crops produce much earlier than other crops. And so they had this feast. What they would do as soon as things began to grow, they would get just a little bit of a harvest, usually of barley. That's what was in view in the Jewish feast day of first fruits. They would take some barley sheaves from the field. They took them to the temple and they waved them before the Lord. And it was the idea of thanksgiving to God. He's providing for us. He's given us what we need. And it was something that was, uh, it became their routine. It was built into their calendar. It was one of seven major feast days that Israel celebrated. What's really neat is that we think of this, again, as like Holy Week or Passion Week and all that happened over 2,000 years ago leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection. But God, in His you know, awesomeness and His sovereignty, He ordained that those feast days basically were prophetic of Jesus' ministry. Jesus was crucified on Passover, which was one of their seven feast days. He was crucified on Passover. Right after Passover, they had the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Leaven, for the Jews, served at times as a picture of sin. And the idea of unleavened bread is kind of distance yourself from sin. And they had to get leaven out of their houses. Well, Jesus died on Passover when the Jews would usually you know, offer a sacrifice uh, you know, before God. And then he goes into the tomb, which connects with unleavened bread. He's put in the tomb. And through his death, what is he doing? He's taking sin far away, just like the Jews had to take leaven out of their homes. So the Passover spoke of his death. Unleavened bread spoke of him taking sin away. And guess what? He rose again on that Sunday over 2,000 years ago. It was the day, it was the feast of firstfruits. So when we say he's the firstfruits of resurrection, he literally rose on that day in the Jewish calendar. So those feast days, those seven feast days, connect to Jesus Christ. Really cool. It's a really neat thing to study out more. And because there's actually other feast days, we know that Jesus is going to have a future ministry on this earth, and he's going to be fulfilling the rest of those feast days when he comes back, which is really cool. But anyway, he is the firstfruits. And it's just so that God made it happen on the actual day of firstfruits in Israel when they were going to celebrate that feast. He came out of that tomb. And he is the first fruits. And he again was the first one to truly rise from the dead. He is the first fruits of resurrection. People before him had been brought back to life. They had been resurrected in a lesser sense. Lazarus had died and Jesus called him out of the tomb four days later. Others had come back from the dead in the Old Testament. The apostles brought people back from the dead. 
Those were a lesser kind of resurrection because all those people came back in this corrupted human physical body and they died again. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he came back in an incorruptible body, fitted for glory, fitted for heaven, never to know corruption, never to know death or decay ever again. And that's what's in store for us. That's the kind of body and existence that now we're waiting for. Revelation 1.5 describes Jesus this way. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. That's how Revelation describes it. The very first one in true resurrection. But the point we're making here is that all resurrection is vested in Jesus Christ. In a very powerful verse, something Jesus himself said, it's found in John 11.25. This is something Jesus said right before he raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Jesus is resurrection. And one day he will call forth all the dead, at each in their respective time, as we'll see. But because he'll be calling them out, they will rise. Because he was the first from the dead, the first fruits, the firstborn. He is the resurrection. So he was the first. So you talk about order of resurrections, and we'll pull it up on the screen here. Jesus Christ is the first fruits. And if you can see that on the screen, otherwise it's in your bulletin. We, we have a little blue bar across the screen, and basically we're going to put all the resurrections in that blue bar. And we're looking back, it's just a simple graphic, that the very first one was Jesus Christ as the first fruits. But as we go on in our passage of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22, again read, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. We see here, first of all, we believe in universal resurrection. Okay, we believe in universal, everyone will be resurrected, believer or unbeliever, just or unjust. And we'll show that in, in just as we go through. Everyone will be resurrected. But not everybody will be resurrected to the, same, to the same place, with the same destiny and the same future. And as we read through these verses here, all, it says in verse 21, the resurrection from the dead came by one man. That's Christ. He brings resurrection to all. But verse 22 says, in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. That's true even in resurrection. Because those who are resurrected that are still in Adam, that are still lost and unjust before God, their resurrection is not our resurrection. They're resurrected to condemnation. But in Christ, all shall be made alive. We are resurrected to life. And that's the two kinds of resurrection. Everybody will be resurrected. 
but there's two kinds of resurrection, even as we start to see hinted in our passage. First of all, this is point B. There is resurrection to everlasting life. This is really true of all saints of all times. When you're resurrected, it is to life, God's life, everlasting life, eternal life. We're given it right now as soon as we believe in Christ, but then our bodies too will experience it in the resurrection. That there are two basic kinds of resurrection is established in Scripture. Even as far back as Daniel 12, 2, Daniel had an angel say to him, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now I'll say, I think Daniel actually has two prophesied resurrections in mind, but there's a principle when you're considering that everybody gets resurrected, There's only one of two choices how that works. It's to life or it's to condemnation and death forever. It's the only two choices. Jesus basically reaffirmed this. He reiterated the idea in John 5, 28 through 29, where he said, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. Isn't that something? When he raised Lazarus, he said, Lazarus, come forth. And some have said, if he didn't say Lazarus, everybody would have came out of the grave. (laughs) Because he is the resurrection life. Everyone will hear his voice and come out of their graves. But notice what he says in verse 29. And come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Two kinds of resurrection, life or condemnation. Even the Apostle Paul talked about this twofold idea. Acts 24, 15. Part of his testimony he's giving here, and he says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. Everyone is coming out of the graves. Everyone is going to be resurrected. But there's only two ways it happens. One, to life, or to everlasting condemnation. I think Paul may even have this in mind in verse 22. Verse 21, again, it's very clear. All are resurrected. He says, since by man came death, he's talking about Adam. Adam brought death to everyone. Nobody gets a say in it. You're going to die. Unless the Lord comes first in the rapture, which we'll talk about later. But... He says, by man also came the resurrection from the dead. Jesus brings resurrection to everyone. They don't get a say either. Everyone will rise from the grave. What you do get a say in is whether you come back still in Adam, lost, or in Christ, saved. It's a choice you make before the Lord to trust in him as your Savior. That's going to determine now whether you're resurrected unto everlasting life or resurrected unto everlasting condemnation. This is what Paul has in mind here in our passage in 1 Corinthians 15. He's specifically trying to remind the Corinthians that they're going to be resurrected to life in Jesus Christ because of what he did on the cross and through his death, burial, and resurrection. All who have been saved over the ages, though, will experience resurrection to everlasting life, fitted to be in the fellowship of God forever, whether on earth or in heaven. But it will be unto life and they will live forever in their resurrected form. 
But of course, as we've already been talking about, point C, there is resurrection to everlasting condemnation. It's not the one we really like talking about a whole lot, but it's the reality. And it's why Jesus talked about it, why Paul talked about it, why we talk about it, because it is the truth. Everyone must stand before our holy God. And you're either going to stand justified in Christ or unjustified still in your sins. And the condemnation that that brings. Again, he says in verse 23, For in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And the Bible paints a picture for us. We read about it in Revelation 20 in our scripture reading. We'll look at it again a little bit later as well. But there is a real place called the lake of fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. But all souls will go there in their resurrected bodies that have spurned God's grace, have not responded to God by faith, have not put their faith in Christ if they're alive today. They will be resurrected, still in their sins, still lost, still separated from from God, and they will go into the lake of fire. And the Bible calls that the second death. Think about that. You're resurrected just to be put in a state where you are basically dying forever. It's death every day forever because you're separated from God. It's a place of unquenchable and everlasting fire what the Bible explains to us. It's a real thing. In Adam, all die in this life and in the life to come. You will not cease to exist. You will live forever, but in that resurrected form in the lake of fire. The second death is an everlasting death. It's a very sombering thing to talk about, but a very real fate and one that we want to always be aware of because we know the people we love in our lives, the people we know, it's one or the other in these two kinds of resurrection. They're going to spend eternity somewhere. They're going to spend eternity somewhere. Every human soul is immortal and will exist somewhere forever, forever, either in the presence of God or separated from God forever in the lake of fire. Vody Bauckham writes, the last time I checked, the death rate was one per person. I didn't check today, but I'm sure it didn't change. It is appointed to man to die once, then face the judgment. So everyone, everywhere is asking or will ask the same question. How can I avoid being defeated by that last enemy? You can't beat him. You can't buy him off. You can't appease him. You can't outrun him. You can't exercise enough or eat well enough. There is nothing you can do to avoid being overtaken by this enemy. But the resurrection says you can overcome this enemy. Oh, death, where is your sting? You see, when you stand over a believer, it's not the same as standing over an unbeliever. Because when you stand over a believer, you know that because of his union with Christ, his federal head, he will rise just as Christ rose from the dead. There is a resurrection coming, so this sting is gone. Death's victory is gone. That's what the resurrection of Christ accomplished. It's why the resurrection of the dead is universal for every soul that's ever lived. 
all will be resurrected either to life or to everlasting condemnation and death. As we go on in our passage, though, Paul begins to paint a clearer picture of the when these things happen. There's two kinds, but there's a difference in when. There's a difference in the order of resurrections that the Bible talks to us about. Let's read the next couple of verses here. Verse 24, or excuse me, we'll read verse 23 and 24. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. So you see there where he says, each one in his own order. There is a sequence of resurrections that the Bible informs us about. There is a chronology. And God has explained to us that chronology. And it's what we're going to be putting up in our chart up on the screen momentarily again as we work through this. There will be three future resurrections. Now, this passage is not explicit that there's three to come. It hints at a couple, and we're going to bring in another one from a later part of the passage. But there are three future resurrections that the Bible really emphasizes. The first one is called, the first one we'll discuss is called the first resurrection, which will take place after Christ's second coming to earth. It's what the Bible designates as the first resurrection. Jesus is the first fruits. The one that Paul mentions next here is the first prophesied resurrection. This is the one that Daniel had in mind specifically. This is the one that Jesus Christ had in mind specifically when he talked about resurrection to life. This was the when he had in mind. And again, this uh, well, let me just let's kind of lay it out in, in word, and then we'll look on the screen. But basically, what's going to happen is, we know there's a future prophesied tribulation to come to this world where God pours his wrath out on Israel and the nations. It's been postponed for now, but it's still on the timetable to come. We will be gone, and we'll talk about that. But the tribulation will come on this earth. It will last for seven years. It will be horrible, but then Jesus Christ will return. Revelation 19 describes that. He won't be coming on a donkey this time. He comes on a white horse to rule the nations with a rod of iron. He comes as a man of war, like we talked about in Sunday school. He comes as a soldier, a warrior, to claim this earth as his kingdom, to lay hold on it. He will, at that time, defeat the Antichrist and the false prophet who will have been running rampant for at least three and a half years. He will defeat their kingdom. He will defeat their armies. And those two individuals will go right into the lake of fire alive. Which I guess I assume that they'll be resurrected right as they go in because they'll, they'll be there forever in a bodily form as well. And then Jesus will bind Satan for a thousand years as he brings in a kingdom upon this earth, a golden age like the world has never known, where the effects and curse of sin will be diminished, where people will live as long as they want, as long as they live faithfully before him. They can live for a thousand years if they live faithfully before him. And he will reign for that time. But one of the things he does when he comes back 
as he's binding Satan, an angel does that specifically, puts him in the bottomless pit. Revelation, again, tells us that's when the first resurrection happens. Right after his return to the earth. If you want to turn back over, turn to Revelation chapter 20. We'll look at this passage a couple of times here in the remainder of our time. Revelation chapter 20, and let me just read verses 4 through 6. This is after Jesus returns to the earth in his second coming. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death, that's the lake of fire, has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. They're going to be raised to be part of Jesus' kingdom on this earth. The ones specifically mentioned there are those who are martyred during the tribulation. Those that have to give their lives for their faith in Christ at that time. But I do not believe that that is all who is resurrected. I believe that all of the saints that were promised the earthly kingdom will also rise on that day. For example, in Matthew 8:11, in a context of Jesus' earthly kingdom, he warned some, he says, And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So what do we make from that? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're going to be there. All those saints that you read about in the Old Testament, they're going to be there. They're going to rise that day. I believe they're going to be part of what the Bible calls the first resurrection that Jesus does right after his second coming. Let's go ahead and pull the slides back up here on the screen a moment. And I think we might have missed a verse here, but let's go ahead. Maybe I didn't get it in there this morning. But again, now you can see what we've added is we've, we've plotted on the timeline that it's after the tribulation that you see on the screen, which is on the bottom of the bar, Jesus Christ returns to the earth in the second coming, and it's right after that that the first resurrection occurs, where those who died in the tribulation for Christ will be raised, the saints that had been promised the earth will also rise to inherit it, in his kingdom. And there will also be those who are living at that time and who are believers, and they will go into the kingdom in their living bodies and continue to live out their lives in the millennial kingdom. It'll be a kingdom of unresurrected saints and resurrected saints. Don't ask me how that works exactly, but that's what the Bible teaches us. But there's also the resurrection of the unjust which takes place after the millennial kingdom of the Lord. There's another resurrection. Again, what Daniel had in mind, he talked about those raised to condemnation. Christ talked about those raised to everlasting contempt. Paul talked about resurrection of the unjust. And there is a single resurrection that encompasses that whole group. The lost of all ages will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ in their sins, 
be judged for their works and be cast into the lake of fire. This is the resurrection of the unjust. Again, it will take place after the millennial kingdom. We'll look again, Revelation chapter 20, which explains this to us as well. It tells us what happens. This happens at the end of Jesus' 1,000-year reign. At the beginning is the first resurrection. Those saints come back to life in their bodily resurrected form, and they get to live with him throughout that kingdom. At the end, there's one last war. Satan is loosed. From his prison, he goes out, he deceives the nations one last time. He somehow is able to gather a whole army, surround Jerusalem, like they're going to overthrow the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And they come, and fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. And then it goes right into the final judgment, the final resurrection, the resurrection of the unjust. So let's look at Revelation chapter 20. Uh, First of all, 7 through 10. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp and the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever. Most likely, since that's when Satan's cast in the lake of fire, that's the probable time when all the fallen angels are judged. And he and all of his hosts are probably then cast into the lake of fire. Remember, the lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. And this passage seems to indicate when they end up there. A lot of people think Satan's in hell now, right? In a little red suit and a pitchfork. That's not biblically correct. He's alive and well as the prince and the power of the air, deceiving people today, blinding hearts and minds to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But his time is coming. His day is coming. We see that last human rebellion in that passage. It's ended with fire from heaven. And then as we go on in Revelation, it takes us to what's called the great white throne judgment. Then I saw, this is verse 11 of Revelation 20, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. What we just read, it's not only a judgment, it's a resurrection. The sea gave up the dead. That means people lost at sea who drowned and died and bodies lost forever. God will bring them right back in bodily form. The souls of the departed that now are in Hades waiting for judgment, they're going to come out of Hades and be reunited with their bodies in resurrected form. And they will exist that way forever. But they're resurrected to stand before the Lord in judgment. And their works are judged out of the book. And not a one of their names, I don't believe, is found in the book of life. This is the resurrection of the unjust and also the judgment of the unjust. We go on in verse 14. 
cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone now not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. Those people, people who never trusted Christ in this life or never responded to God in faith unto justification, were never declared righteous through faith, they will be resurrected on that day, stand before the Lord, and they will end up in the lake of fire, which the Bible calls second death, where you basically are dying forever in that resurrected form. That is the resurrection of the unjust. And so we'll pull it up on the screen again here. And we fill in now toward the very end of the graphic, the resurrection of the unjust. That is the final resurrection. Now, I'll just make a quick comment. I don't have this one enumerated. But we also know that there will be people who live in their normal bodily form through the millennial kingdom. So, but, but they have to also be resurrected to live in eternity future. And the Bible doesn't explicitly state when or how they're resurrected, but most likely that around the time that Jesus raises the unsaved dead for judgment, right before you go into a new heavens and a new earth, he'll probably just simply translate those living saints into their resurrected form so that they can go into eternity future with the rest who have been resurrected. So you might say there's a fourth one, but it's not really enumerated in Scripture. But the, the millennial kingdom saints will also have to be resurrected, those who go living into the kingdom and live through that time or are born in that time. Their resurrection will likely be at the end of that. But there's also another resurrection that Paul talks about back in our passage of 1 Corinthians. And again, I don't think he explicitly mentions it in our direct passage, but we're going to look ahead a little bit in 1 Corinthians 15. And I want to take you forward to verses 51 and 52. Some of you probably already were guessing where I was going there. Because we could say, well, the first resurrection is when the people martyred during the tribulation are raised and those who had an earthly hope like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are raised. What about us today that are members of the body of Christ, Jew and Gentile, saved by grace through faith? We're told our citizenship is in heaven. We're not told we're inheriting the earth. We're, We're seated with Christ in the heavens. We'll reign with him there. When do we get resurrected? Or do we have we talked about it yet? And my answer is no. It's a different time. And it's 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52 that make this clear. Paul says here, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Paul's explaining resurrection, and later he finally says, I tell you a secret. In the Greek, it's the word, I believe it's musterion, from where we get our word mystery. So it says it's mystery in our translation, but in the Greek it also means secret. The idea is Paul is saying something now that had not been mentioned before. It had not been prophesied before. He's talking about a specific event that happens at a specific time that God had not revealed until it was revealed to and through Paul. And we're talking about the event that you and I know as the rapture, which some people refer to it as the secret coming of Christ for the church. Because when and you can read in 1 Thessalonians 4 more about this, he comes in the air. He doesn't come all the way to the earth. And we hear the voice of an archangel and the last trump, and then 
the dead in Christ who know him as Savior in this dispensation, they're raised up. They go up to meet him in the air. And then those of us who are still alive and walking around the earth, instantaneously we're caught up in there in a blink of an eye, changed, and we are in our resurrected body in the air with the Lord, and we all go into heaven together. That is our resurrection that Paul is saying it was a secret. It wasn't, it wasn't something that Daniel was really talking about specifically. It wasn't something that even Jesus Christ was talking about specifically. Those guys were looking at how, it, how resurrection worked with Jesus' second coming and his kingdom. But Paul brings out, what about the church today? It's this secret resurrection that only Paul made known. And we find as we study scripture, it takes place at a time completely separate from the second coming of Jesus Christ. It is our uh, belief, conviction, that, again, the resurrection here is the rapture, where both the dead and living believers are resurrected. We do not believe we are part of the first resurrection, but the secret resurrection. And what we find is that secret resurrection takes us out of this earth before God's day of wrath, before the tribulation. So we'll pull... Oh, and let me just read this verse for you. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 is one of several verses that give us this idea. Paul says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. God is going to deliver you and I from the wrath to come. The wrath to come is not upon the body of Christ. It's upon the world, which lives separate from him. You and I will be caught out of this world and what we just read about in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and 52. And sometime after that, I believe it will be pretty quickly after that, God will resume his plans for Israel, for this world. He will begin the, the tribulation period not long after. And if we pull up the slide, we'll plot the rapture on here. And now you can see it actually is back. It's the one closest to Jesus' resurrection. You see the arrow going up, and it says secret resurrection or rapture, and we've put that before the tribulation. So this is the order of resurrections that the Bible establishes for us. All resurrection is vested in Jesus Christ, but there is an order of resurrections. We go up at his secret coming, where he never comes to the earth, and are resurrected in that moment. After the tribulation, seven years later, he comes down to the earth as the mighty warrior on the white horse and takes this earth as part of his kingdom by force. And he will reign for a thousand years. And that's where those other two resurrections occur. The first resurrection at the beginning of the millennium, the second, or you might say the resurrection of the unjust, at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. You know, going back to that idea, it's springtime, things are growing. You know, the idea of Jesus being the first fruits, it was an early crop. You know, anybody here that gardens, you know certain things when you grow them, they don't all get ripe at the same time. You do a garden, you know, then we got a little time before we really do that here. You may be planting things inside, but we don't plant things outside for a while. But you know, not everything is harvested at the same time. Some things are ready earlier, some later. Things like radishes and kale and lettuce, you can get those pretty quick from the time you grow, when you plant them, to the time they're ready. You're, that harvest comes early. Other things, like cucumbers, take a little more time. And then in our garden, we don't get to pick pumpkins till like near the end you know, of the whole season. They're, they're way down at the end, right? It takes a while for those pumpkins to grow and some other crops too. 
so is the resurrection. You and I, we're the early crop. We're the early harvest. We go right before the tribulation and in a secret coming. Then more time goes on. And then there's the first resurrection. And then there's more time that goes on. And finally, the resurrection of the unjust. This is a picture of God's harvesting of the resurrection up on the screen before you. But that's not as far as Paul goes. He goes even further back in our passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28. And we'll just quickly read these last few verses again. Verse 25 through 28. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. What that, that passage there is looking, it's kind of looking beyond the resurrection. It's looking at the end of what we call time. It's looking at the threshold of eternity future. If it was up on this chart, it would be on the far right of that, which we'll pull up in a moment. There's some passages that speak to some of the things Paul's talking about there. Psalm 110.1, a psalm by King David. He says in verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. I know I, I threw Christopher off because I forgot to give point A. Death will be destroyed. I skipped ahead of my point there. My fault. <laughs> Death will be destroyed. Then we read Psalm 110.1. Okay. Anyway, but it talks about his enemies will be made known. I mean, his enemies will become his footstool. It's just talking about God, the Father, will make the Son, Jesus Christ, Lord of everything. Everything on this planet, everything in heaven, even death itself, he becomes Lord of. And death is the last enemy, as Paul talks about in our passage. When you get to the end of time, all have been resurrected. Nobody can die anymore. As we speak in terms of our physical life, that's over. The whole era of death is ended. And now we are in the era of eternity, where all are resurrected. Revelation 21.4 says this of that era. It speaks of the kingdom on the earth specifically, but it, I think the principle goes beyond to all of God's realms in eternity. Revelation 21.4 20, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. That is looking to the end, to the end of time. It's looking at a time when there's a new heavens and a new earth. As, we, as we're looking at the future here, what, what we're talking about is, point B on your outline, the history of redemption will be complete. Paul takes us all the way to the end of the story in this passage. And I think part of the reason he does so is to give believers hope. We know how the story ends so we can deal with the plot of the story today. We know where it goes. We've seen the last pages. We know who wins. We know where we end up in everlasting eternity in our resurrected form. Revelation 21.1 talks about a new heaven and a new earth to come. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. 
when you go all up that far into Revelation, you are now into eternity future. New heavens, new earth, no sin, Satan's in the lake of fire, unbelievers in the lake of fire, no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. It's all done. The history of redemption is complete. Jesus is Lord of all. And because Jesus submits to the Father, as, as the last part of our verse says in verse 28, God is all in all. He is above all through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Death itself defeated at that time. <clears throat> A man by the name of uh, Stuart Strachan Jr. told uh, the following about the missionary, Leslie Newbigin. He writes, Towards the end of his life, the great missionary, theologian, cultural critic, Leslie Newbigin, gave an interview. His interviewer asked him an interesting question, made even more poignant by the fact that Newbigin had returned home from the mission field to find his home country of England had become increasingly secularized showing scant interest in the Christian faith. Newbigin's reply was quite powerful. I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Unlike many Christians, Newbigin was able to keep that which is most important at the center of his faith and life. The tomb is empty, and even when circumstances seem challenging, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. We know the ending. And it is an exceedingly good one. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your promises through your word and the promise especially this morning of resurrection through Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, we're thankful even as we've looked at some things prophetically and understand what your plan is for us as your church today to take us out of this world before the tribulation and what we refer to as the rapture. We look forward to that day. But we pray, Lord, that in light of that day, we continue to live faithfully this day, that we continue to walk with you by faith through your word and through the power of your spirit that dwells within us. Lord, we just give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.